Hello and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. This podcast was recorded on August 9th, 2017 at 9.30am GMT. So if there have been any significant events which took place in the time after recording, we were obviously unable to cover them. Just before we started recording, there was breaking news about uh, six French soldiers being hit by a vehicle in Paris. However, this is an ongoing news story, so it's unclear who is responsible, whether it was linked to terrorism, and any of the details, all the details are still coming out. So we will be unable to deal with this, and I'm sure you've got a lot more information now when you're listening to it. For those of you who haven't done so already, be sure to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L and to tweet us with the hashtag TalkingTerror. While you're at it, you might as well also check out our website, uel.ac.uk slash T-E-R-C. There you can find information about everything we get up to here at Turk. Including, included amongst this is information about our research, our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, and our exciting new book series with IB Taurus. But first, take a listen to this week's interview with a person who I feel has the best and most specific academic title I have ever heard. A lecturer in radicalization and protest in a digital age in the Department of Politics, Philosophy and Religion at the Lancaster University. It's my great pleasure to have uh, on the podcast today, Dr. Sarah Marsden. Prior to joining Lancaster, uh, she was a lecturer in terrorism studies at the University of St. Andrews. She holds a PhD from that very same university as well, and a master's in forensic psychology and BA honours in philosophy and English literature from the University of Liverpool. Her research and teaching takes an interdisciplinary approach to questions of radical and violent politics, drawing on theory and methods from politics, psychology and sociology. So she's very much an interdisciplinary researcher. She has published widely on global jihadism, uh, religious nationalism and radical social movements and has engaged extensively with statutory and third sector organisations on ter- terrorism, radicalisation and counter- countering violent extremism. Much of her recent work, though, is concentrated on understanding efforts to reintegrate those with a history of involvement in militancy. And she has recently published her book with Palgrave Pivot called Reintegrating Extremists, Deradicalization and Desistance. And that's one of the pieces of research we're going to concentrate on later. Sarah, welcome to the pod and thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for the invitation. It's really lovely to talk to you. So, first of all, how did you get involved in this area of research? What attracted you to uh, carrying out the research you're doing? Because we see in, from the introduction, you had a background in philosophy and English. It's not really what people would think of as the, the entry degree into this kind of research. No, there wasn't. It, and there was a gap between doing that degree and then going on to study psychology. Um, so in the meantime, I had a, a sort of a short career running restaurants in London. Um, and moving on from that, I decided that I wanted to look at psychological processes involved in social and political activism in more detail. Um, the actual way that I got into this, the more focused research was um, really a sort of a combination of opportunity and, and somebody believing that I could contribute in a useful way. I was finishing my master's actually in forensic psychology and um, my academic lead at that time, Professor Joanna Adler, uh, had a relationship with probation services in London and they were facing this challenge in around 2007 that uh, people were starting to be released into the community with terrorism 
convictions and they weren't sure really how best to manage that process. They felt there was something different and distinct about that particular population. And because I've done my dissertation on terrorism and on Al-Qaeda, um, they invited me to start um, engaging in a piece of work which looked at community capacity to support the reintegration of people who've been involved in terrorism offences. So it was really um, around that sort of stage 2007-8 when um, the first wave of terrorism offenders were being released into the community that essentially there was a practice-based need for evidence and research and there wasn't anything in the wider literature that was really addressing that in a practical sense. So I was invited to do that piece of work and then essentially just carried on. Um, mm. Did a series of pieces of work with the probation services over a period of years um, that looked again at this um, question of how to support the reintegration of people who've been convicted of terrorism offences. Um, and through that, um, recognised that I needed a PhD to continue to do that work um, and then ended up at St Andrews, um, where I met your good self. And we're uh, <laughs> done from there, actually. And so from the very beginning, you were, it wasn't purely academia, it was you were linked with practitioners, you were doing work alongside practitioners to see how best uh, these type of programs could work. Do you feel that um, that a link between academic academia and practitioners is important? I think it is really important, actually, yes. And I think that we've got better and more sophisticated in thinking about how to manage that relationship, because it's not always easy. Um, the questions that practitioners bring are not necessarily always the ones that academics are interested in. And there are um, risks for both sides of engaging in that sort of um, interaction between policy and practice and research. But I think it's really important. I think people are um, in need of evidence-based, genuine, strong, empirical evidence-based for making really difficult decisions. There is always a political agenda within sort of policy practice research um, or policy practice oriented research, but um, I think provided researchers are critical about that engagement and recognise the limits and recognise the potential uh, risks that sit around it, I think it can be a really fruitful relationship. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned these risks. What do you feel these risks are um, for on both sides? I think, I mean, from a broader sort of academic point of view, there can be a risk that um, you address very much a sort of a policy practice agenda and that that can sometimes divert you from seeing a bigger picture. So recognising... Um, a broader set of questions which the field needs to engage with. Um, policy practice questions can sometimes neglect really important issues, um, whether that might be, for instance, state terrorism, or um, at the moment, obviously, there's a huge focus on jihadi Salafism, but the far right are emerging as an increasing threat. And so there's, a, there's an important point there about not taking the policy practice agenda as being the primary agenda to work to. So contextualising that in the wider literature, in the wider field and the, the research that's going on um, and not essentially just uncritically accepting their, their position as the things that, that we need to look at. So I think that's one of the biggest um, things to just remain conscious of. And I think, you know, more generally it can be challenging to engage um, in that sort of space where there are political agendas at work which do not um, resonate with or speak to um, your own personal political positions perhaps um, and the way that your research can be manipulated or can be presented in ways which you have less control over perhaps. So I think that there are some sort of lower order risks associated with that. But I, again, I think the field more generally is recognising that 
there are important questions and important ways in which evidentiary and transparent ways of engaging with policy and practice matters and um, and that we've got something to say about that as academics but always remaining and retaining that critical distance so that you are not merely uh, you know um, a, consult a consultant purely for the state let's say but that you maintain a critical distance and you're able to critique those practices, those policies, which you don't believe to be appropriate, evidence-based or effective. And I think you do this, do this very successfully in your research as well. You, you manage to deal with these risks um, in the ways that you've described it there. Um, so you had this, uh, you went from managing restaurants in London to uh, master's in forensic psychology, and that's where you would have been first introduced to this literature. Uh, the literature that we're all engrossed in uh, doing our research. So I've asked you to put forward three publications that influenced you. Um, I'm not sure if these started influencing you during your master's or during your PhD or uh, afterwards, but what's the first piece that you've chosen? Um, well, I'm about to I'm about to extend it to four pieces. It was oh. actually the first the first two books really, which um, introduced me in a more sort of substantial and significant way to the field, were books by Andrew Silk. Oh. So, and there were two of those, obviously, research on terrorism trends, achievements and failures, and also terrorist victims in society. And both of those books together introduced me in a more systematic way to uh, research in this area. To um, and helped me develop my own thinking about positioning what I wanted to do and the questions I was concerned with in that wider landscape. So those books really laid out the landscape of work in the field and they introduced me to the boundaries of the knowledge in terrorism studies and what that meant as a discipline, if indeed it is a discipline, mm -hmm. um, and enabled, enabled me to really think about um, particularly the psychological processes that were implicated involvement in extremism and how we can research them. So it was a bit of a how-to guide about um, how not to do things sometimes. So certainly the, the book Research on Terrorism, Trends, Achievements and Failures had more to say to me about the failures and about the limits of the research that had been achieved um, and the conclusions really the, and the extent of the evidence base in the field. Um, but it also set out a route map. It suggested ways to develop and improve uh, research in this area. So more than anything, those two books really inspired me to think about how I might be able to contribute to that body of knowledge because it was increasingly important. And I think one of the questions about, well, why this? Why is it interesting to me? Um, not only was there an opportunity to engage in a piece of research that um, was obviously rooted in this space, um, but it was also sort of my <laughs> intrinsic uh, scepticism about what was being presented um, in the media um, and more generally about this question of terrorism and it really those books inspired me to think about how I might contribute to the evidence which might develop better stronger more robust answers to some of those questions which really were not going away um, so it helped me to develop my thinking about how to navigate that space it introduced me to some of the mistakes that people have made in the past or at least it introduced me to how the field was evolving um, so those two were really important to me and in the early stages when I was um, doing the masters and then um, it just provided a platform really I think um, as I went on to do the PhD research and even beyond that um, to just be mindful of the limits of the knowledge that we can um, and the limits of the um, strength of the arguments that we can present in this space. Yeah, I, I think they're they're excellent contributions. I'm not just saying this because Andrew's a colleague of mine here. And I've actually, 
is like it's hard to believe that research on terrorism was published in 2004 so that's 13 years ago now if you were uh, to be giving andrew uh, to, uh, to be pushing andrew to do a second edition of this what new additions do you think would be brought into a book like that uh, in the advances that we've made in in those 13 years I think um, interdisciplinary research and interdisciplinary methods and theory would be a really important way of um, just sort of consolidating the knowledge, really. I think there is a real need for more systematic um, reviews of evidence. So, um, you know, there are umpteen theories of radicalisation, um, you know, there are umpteen sets of evidence around particular issues, whether that's lone actors or foreign fighters, but actually having systematic baseline understandings of um, what do we know about countering violent extremism and its effectiveness? What do we know about the characteristics of people um, who carry out particular roles in militant organisations? So breaking it down, I think, into specific questions and then saying what and carrying out, it, you know, possibly to the extent of sort of, the, you know, a Campbell systematic review process of saying, well, actually, how strong is the evidence at this point? And benchmarking that, because I think one of the issues with the explosion of research in this field is that there is an awful lot of um, work that is not very strongly evidence and the evidence is, you know, is not as robust as it could be. Um, and there is increasing amounts of it. So actually having a baseline to say, this is what we know in, you know, 2017, 18 about CVE and its effectiveness, about disengagement, de-radicalisation processes, about how to think about radicalisation and involvement in extremism, about the roles that people involve themselves in and how that matters, about different types of militants who operate within organisations, about gender. So there's a whole set of questions which the literature is engaging with at an increasingly frenetic pace. But the act having a really solid understanding of this is the evidence, this is actually what we can claim to know about these issues will be really helpful to kind of draw a line and then build on. So I think that would be my advice. I, I think I think that's a really important point because if you look at disciplines like psychology and criminology, they do systematic reviews really well and really achieves what you were talking about, that it, it gathers together all the evidence and says this is what we know. But in an area uh, uh, studying terrorism as a as a topic it really isn't being done everyone wants to come out and it seems come out with their new piece but we need to yeah take a step back and and take a look at okay what do we know already what's the platform where we we should build upon i think that's a really good point um yeah yeah it's it's uh it's something that that uh that should be should be done more often and should be um should be advised to to people to do more often what's the the next the next piece then so the next book is john hawkins walking away from terrorism accounts of disengagement from radical and extremist groups and this was really the first systematic book length work account of just trying to explore what disengagement and de-radicalization meant and it was really seminal for me because I was working obviously in that space trying to understand um, how to support this process and to try and support the movement away from extremism you obviously need to look more broadly and understand how other people have conceptualized it and experienced it and I think that book was the first really sort of systematic or at least um, concerted efforts to understand those processes and to lay out some of the evidence um, and it drew really importantly on first-hand in-depth interviews with those who have been involved in extremism um, and that again although 
more and more people are being able to access those with a history of involvement in extremism and terrorism, it still remains relatively unusual. Um, and the evidence base does not is not strong with respect to first-hand accounts on, of what actually involvement in extremism and the walk, moving away from extremism means for people. Um, and it demonstrated through the accounts that John Horgan sets out in that book, really the incredible complexity of the processes that are involved, the way that it, um, involvement and disengagement processes implicate the wider socio-political context, group processes, individual processes and experiences, um, and it really didn't shy away from that complexity. So although it didn't necessarily set out a theory of de-radicalisation, what it did was lay out the landscape of some of the challenges, of the things that we need to explain. Um, and really, as I say, crucially, it gave some insight into what involvement in extremism and terrorism meant for those individuals. And that was really crucial for me. Um, and the other thing that it did was in certain trying to kind of explore and um, explain to some degree those processes. It first, uh, it was the first time I encountered criminological theory being brought into dialogue with research on terrorism, particularly around this question of desistance. So how can we think about, and John essentially raised the question, how can desistance from criminality and the knowledge that we have about that be brought to bear on questions about de-radicalization and disengagement? And that sent me off um, uh, on a whole sort of you know exploration of that literature to help inform my thinking really and to see the commonalities importantly between disengagement from criminality and disengagement from extremism and that you know there are more sort of similarities than um, than might necessarily have been considered the case at that time and it just provided a broader landscape really and a broader set of knowledge to build on so that's why that book seems so important to me. And the, these themes of disengagement, desistance, de-radicalisation, they become major themes throughout your research um, as, as you move on, as we've seen uh, with your, your recent book. And I think it's important for those listeners who potentially don't have a background understanding in this literature. What is the difference between disengagement and de-radicalisation and desistance? How would you, uh, how would you see the, the key differences here? Um, the, the most common way of describing the difference, particularly between de- de-radicalization and disengagement is that de-radicalization reflects um, a change in attitudes or ideas which indicate a reduced commitment to involvement in extremism. So it's more about um, internal processes with respect to individual attitudes and ideas. Disengagement, on the other hand, is typically used to describe the behavioural processes that are associated with the movement away from extremism. So that would be leaving the militant group, but not necessarily giving up the commitment to the ideas or the political platform that that movement was concerned with. So that's the the main distinction that's described in the literature. Desistance is a process of, um, again, sort of rooted in the criminological literature, which is around um, a process of desisting from crime, so sort of reduced involvement in criminality over time. Um, So it's a slightly different focus and it's more concerned with trying to sort of support and understand that process, whereas the de-radicalisation disengagement dichotomy, which I think, to be fair, is probably an oversimplification and um, and neglects the really complex ways actually people engage, disengage, re-engage, disengage again from militancy and the very complex ways that people have to think through their own ideological commitments. Um, but more, as I say, in the wider literature, that disengagement, de-radicalisation distinction remains um, quite robust. And um, I think the more work that I do on it, the more I would like to kind of disrupt that and um, and just draw attention to 
the fact that they are potentially useful categories at a very broad level, but actually when you look at individual stories and accounts, they're not as helpful explanatorily in developing an understanding of how people move into and out of extremism. And I think these are really important points that you're making here. And it's important. The reason I asked that question about the difference between those is because it, it's noted in your research, it's noted in the research of uh, Bart Sherman, Edwin Backer and others as well, that when you're looking at at a reintegration program or a de-radicalization program or a disengagement program, you have to set your goals clearly at the beginning. What is success? What are we trying to achieve? Is it de-radicalization? Is it going to be something uh, more cognitive than behavioral as well? And by setting those goals, by knowing what your, uh, what your aims are, that's how you can measure success then as well. And it's... Um, they're very, they're, they're, it might seem like slightly nuanced uh, differences there, but they're very important differences to emphasize as well. And you're, you emphasize the criminological literature there and the discussions of desistance and, um, uh, and how you were engaging in the criminological literature, how John's uh, book, Walking Away, uh, first introduced you to that dialogue. And that, uh, that sort of leads me to believe that this is how you you came across the next uh, the next piece of research that you that you're focused yeah. on. What's that? No, that's right. So the third book is Shad Maruna's um, 2001 book called Making Good: How Ex Convicts How Ex Convicts Reform and Rebuild Their Lives. And it was indeed John's book, uh, John Horgan's book, that put me onto that because he he referenced that um, in the final chapter, and it it opened up my thinking um, about how. How do we actually break down this process, those big categories like de-radicalization and disengagement? How do we actually understand that in the context of individual people's lives? So that, as you say, brought me onto Shabamuna's work and the desistance literature more generally. And it is just an exceptional book. It is um, a brilliant piece of social science. It was uh, based on the Liverpool Desistance Study, which looked at um, several hundred people who had been convicted of offences in Liverpool and essentially engaged with them over a series of years to try and understand why some people desisted, i.e. moved away from criminality, and why some people were uh, came to be known as persisters, those who persistently re-engaged in criminality. So not political um, involvement or political um crime but more generally um, everything from kind of robbery to um, drug taking and so on and it's as I say a really solid piece of research which was just refreshing given uh, how weak some of the literature within terrorism studies and extremism the literature on extremism was but it was also a deeply it didn't judge and it was a deeply almost I would say almost a compassionate book in the the sense that it tried to really help people and understand how people become um, they can't see a way out of involvement in criminality and the way that he engaged with that, he and his team engaged with that question was actually to to listen to the narratives that they told about their involvement. Um, and he was particularly focused on this question of why do some people desist and why do some people persist? And this was rooted in a way, um, or, or the explanation that he sort of explored was that people develop accounts and explanations of their experiences and the reasons for their involvement in criminality, which in some cases redeem them, and they're known as redemption scripts. So the way that actually people make sense of their experience in ways that actually preserve their self-esteem and their self-respect. So they say they, they are making good. So they're turning their lives around and they're doing something really positive and moving forward. Whereas the persistent, the persisters, the persistent script um, is a condemnatory 
script so people are um every they're victims and they're unable to think their way out of the particular situation they're in so what that did was um really draw attention to the importance of these first-hand accounts again to understand what experience of involvement in illegal behavior behavior that breaks social norms means um, but it, it also introduced me to narrative accounts of identity so the notion of narrative identity that uh, process of sense making where we uh, develop a story about a reconstructed past that we've lived and um, think about that in the context of an imagined future um, and how exploring those accounts can actually be really powerful in helping us understand better um, and it was also to some degree uh, helped me sort of uh, think through a particular frustration that I was experiencing around identity and the way that it was implicated in accounts of extremism and terrorism there was this dominance and, and remains to some degree a dominance of sort of social identity oriented approaches where group-based belonging is a key explanatory factor which of course is relevant um, but it, it feels a bit hollow it doesn't actually explain what that means for people isn't it's not enough just to say that people have an us them distinction and that they belong and feel very committed to particular identity groups what matters is explaining how and why those processes matter and accounts of narrative identity were really crucial in Shad Maruna's book and the way that people essentially move uh, away from an offending identity to a non-offending identity and that seemed really important particularly for those involved in extremism because they had moved outside of not only the legal structure and social norms but outside the political structure because they were attacking the existing dominant political status quo and so understanding how people talk their way into and out of those processes from a first-hand point of view was really important and this this issue of identity is something I want to come back to later, but I want to, to take a step back here because I know there'll be some people listening to this podcast who'll be saying, oh yeah, well that's all well and good, but that's with a non-political, non-extremist population. Terrorist population, extremist population, they're completely different. What can we learn from this at all? What would you say to to someone who would put forward a point of view like that? I think there are two things. One is the, the methodological ways that in which we can try and understand these experiences. So there is a lot to be gained from understanding of involvement in criminality and the methods and approaches and theories that have been applied to that space. But also, essentially, if you're talking about non-normative behaviour, behaviour that breaks social norms, um, there are parallels there between choices to offend and choices to become involved in extremism. Agency is an interesting and important question within that. People would argue that those involved in political extremism um, are exerting more agency within respect of their uh, trying to pursue a particular political agenda. But I think that not necessarily, I mean, also increasingly, um, the, the literature on for instance, but those who are convicted of uh, terrorism offences in the UK, there are risk factors which aren't, you know, not necessarily that dis distinct from involvement in um, criminality. And we also see increasingly, particularly um, in the most recent wave of jihadism, that there are increasing overlaps between criminal subcultures and radical subcultures, which I think we need to tease out a bit more. So really, it's an invitation for people to think about, well, what can I learn from accounts of 
uh, rule-breaking behaviour, behaviour that breaks social norms, that helps us understand what's going on in um, terrorism and extremism. Because I think one of the things which is a persistent issue with terrorism research is is the failure to really capitalise on broader theoretical traditions um, in ways that just help us develop better explanations. And I think there's a question there about you know the extent to which something is true in inverted commas, empirically true, and the way that it, or, or asking a slightly different question was, is it useful? Is this particular theory, this particular set of ideas, this particular comparison group useful in helping inform our thinking? So there's a kind of a methodological um, overlap, but there's also a question about drawing on broader bodies of knowledge which can help us think differently about involvement in extremism and terrorism. I think this is a really good point as well, um, because there seems to be this tendency among people who research terrorism by saying, Terrorism is something so different that nothing else can tell us about it, that we have to reinvent. There's a tendency of trying to reinvent the wheel. And we're starting way back when we have this foundation from other disciplines concentrating on other populations that we can really draw upon. And I think you, you've done it really well in uh, by integrating uh, Maruna's work and other work uh, in your own research. And that's what I want to get onto now. And I can hear in your discussions of Maruna's work how it inspired you in relation to uh, your book, Reintegrating Extremists, and also the other uh, article, which I sort of pitched together, uh, which I put together for this discussion, your uh, article conceptualizing success with those convicted of terrorism offenses. In these, you talk about a move away from a risk-oriented um, focus and more focus on a strength-based approach in relation to reintegration of extremists. Could you, first of all, actually, before dealing with that, tell us about the what your research was about and then concentrate on this issue of the risk-orientated approach versus the strength-based approach as well. So the, the, the book Reintegrating Extremists, Deradicalization and Desistance is essentially the sort of the product really of, of a, a series of pieces of research that has tried that have tried to really answer the question, how do we understand and also support the move away from extremism? And that's rooted in, um, that began with that research with London Probation and uh, National Fund of Management Service and has continued um, since then. And essentially that question about how to understand and support the move away away from extremism led me to see really important parallels between the work of Shabba Maruna and others in the desistance uh, literature and um, the ways that actually practitioners were trying to support this process and in the community and now those practitioners are not only statutory agencies but also community-based intervention providers um, who are engaged in this work uh, whether they're mentors whether they're uh, youth workers or community-based workers so the the book and the research is based on several dozen interviews over a period of years with those individuals it's also based on observation of um, the way that people engage um, with those with terrorism convictions to try and support them post-conviction um, as well as case file analysis and all sorts of other forms of data that um, that I was fortunate enough to um, have access to through these different pieces of research. And really the overall um, argument is to focus very heavily on reintegration. So concentrate on finding ways of supporting 
social, political, economic and individual identity oriented reintegration into into a wider social context, which promotes long term outcomes. Um, and there's a risk, of course, that you um, you are considered an apologist for those with terrorism convictions. Um, but I think there's a very pragmatic argument about the importance of that question, which is that if you want long term security and long term desistance um, and really reorienting people so that they they are no longer a risk to the public, then understanding those reintegration processes is really vital. Um, so the book is built around sort of three themes, if you like. The first is um, focusing on that question of reintegration, because what's important to recognise is that those with terrorism convictions often face significant barriers to reintegrating. They're it can find it difficult to find jobs, get bank accounts. Um, it can be difficult to reintegrate back into the family environment, back into the social setting uh, for all sorts of different reasons. Um, in large part due to the stigma of the offence, people are not that minded to uh, employ those with uh, terrorism convictions. The family can often be traumatised as a consequence. Um, and developing new social networks, positive so social networks, can be a really difficult thing. And again, um, on the one hand, people might say that, you, you know, you're being a bit bleeding heart liberal about it. But on, if you do want persistent, ongoing, meaningful reintegration, which reduces the risk to the public, then it seems to me that that argument for reintegration has to continue to be made. So that's the broad point that to not only think about the kind of and to do that in a more contextualized way. So not just think about de-radicalization as the focus on ideological change, because that can sometimes persist, but that doesn't necessarily mean automatically that there is an increased uh, or that they are liable then to move back into extremism. People can continue to be politically engaged in ways with, which don't involve violence. So thinking about that reintegration process more in a more contextual way, so recognising that there are social, economic, individual um, relational ways that people can reintegrate and trying to find ways of supporting that. And really at the core of the book and at the core of um, my sort of it, my thinking, I suppose, in a way, is recognizing that to some extent, that the motivations that people have for involvement in extremism um, are can come sometimes from a good place. Now that might sound a bit perverse. Um, the first thing to say is that there are lots of different ways of being involved in extremism. Not everybody is a suicide bomber. Not everybody is a bomb maker. Not everybody is trying to use violence. So there's a whole range of different types of offences, uh, whether that's fundraising, whether that's protesting, whether that's dissemination of propaganda, which are, which have um, different characteristics. So. And what's important to recognise now, obviously, is that those who are being released into the community, those who um, are essentially the population that the book is based on, are those who've been convicted for less serious offences. Those who've been convicted of attempted murder, bomb making and so on are going to be in prison for a very long time. And I think that they will present different types of challenges with respect to this question of reintegration. Um, but essentially, the desistance-based literature um, recognises particularly in something called the Good Lives Model, which is a model developed by Tony Ward and his colleagues about thinking about essentially why do people become involved in um, illegal behaviours and not necessarily uh, extremism or terrorism. And their argument is that we're all motivated to uh, pursue a range of human goods and those goods can relate to um, work, they can relate to spirituality, they can relate to play, they can relate to creativity. And the argument that this particular model, this Good Lives model, uses is to say people become involved in criminality when the route to achieving those goods is blocked in whatever way. The implication for reintegration is that if you can find ways of enabling people to achieve the goods that matter to them, then you will, uh, but to achieve that in pro-social positive ways, then you will um, 
increase the chances of positive long-term reintegration. So we talk, we hear a lot about um, peer factors being important in involvement in extremism, um, the desire for belonging, for identity, for meaning in their lives. The argument here would be if you can find positive ways of enabling people to achieve those goods in wider society, then you can achieve longer term positive reintegration. So what you're interested in then is first of all understanding what the motivation is for people and second of all trying to redirect that motivation and that's the second theme of the book. How to understand individual motivation and then redirect it in positive ways. So if somebody is motivated by issues of social justice, finding positive ways, in a, often in a local community-based context, of achieving those goals in meaningful and um, sensible ways and pro-social ways, then you can perhaps support that long-term reintegration. And then the third theme of the book is actually developing resilience, developing resilience to those things which might make involvement in extremism appear to be the most effective or attractive or accessible way of achieving those goods. So the, the, the overall argument is if you can understand what the motivations were, find ways of redirecting them in positive ways, you have a better chance of securing long-term reintegration. Yeah, this is this is really interesting what you're talking about. And one of the key points that I feel that you've emphasized there within within the book is that it's not just about the individual being ready. It's not just about the individual being ready for their reintegration. The community that they're reintegrating into has to be ready as well. Um, and that can potentially be one of the major challenges in this. Would you agree? It really is. It really is. Because... Um, no matter how um, committed somebody might be to reintegrating positively and to changing their behaviour and to moving forward um, in ways which don't break the law and um, move away from those extremist networks, if society doesn't provide the means for people to do that, then it's incredibly difficult for them to move forward. Um, so, as I say, difficulty achieving um, employment, difficulty getting into education and training, difficulty getting a bank account, difficulty um, developing new social relations, new social networks. If society is not prepared to support that, then it's incredibly difficult for people to move forward positively. And you either end up with apathy and, and almost stasis where people perceive themselves to be um, so stigmatized and probably in their own minds under so much surveillance that they have no freedom they they can perceive no way forward um as a quote that i'm reminded of from one of the interviewees when um a very experienced probation officer was talking about the most intransigent so those um the way they put it was um trying to think about those who are most embedded, those who are most heavily defended, that you can't even get a chisel in there to try and have a conversation. And they said they, the reason that they thought that that, took, that happened was because society had given them nowhere to go. There were no gates. There was no off-ramp. There was no way out for them. Society had them down as this dangerous terrorist, and there was just no way forward for them. So what, what happened was they became more embedded and more entrenched in their ideological positions, in their identity as an extremist, which meant the, the chances of positive outcomes were significantly reduced. So again, it's a very pragmatic argument. If society wants um, long-term reduction in risk of, of extremism then it has to provide in different ways mechanisms to enable that to take place yeah it's 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 a lesson that that i feel that that needs to is one of the key lessons from the book that needs to be uh, to be taken on board and that's the con the concentration on on society but 
it was I found it fascinating you you mentioned a quote there from one of the probation officers but there was another quote that really uh, stuck with me and it's both contained within uh, conceptualizing con- success and reintegrating extremists I'll read it out for you here it this is from one of the probation officers is stepping somebody back from violent extremism to extremism is that enough do you want them just to be just do you want them just not offending is that enough do you want them to convert to become a catholic how far back do you want to go how far is enough and this is i think it's it's the heart of the discussions about the individuals both in your work and in in john horgan's work which you mentioned earlier away walking which you mentioned earlier on walking away from terrorism it's uh, it really gets to the heart of what are we trying to achieve and it's that whole point of uh, what is success what is success uh, for an individual actor and you were talking about there when you were describing the book um it it's not just about t- about them not having political views it's it's they can still hold political views and so on but one of the things you emphasize is the role that critical thinking can play as well uh rather than just talking about okay they have to be moving completely away from the beliefs but the role that that something like critical thinking can play in relation to to helping them as an individual uh, i know it, it might seem that they're not completely uh, connected at first but what what role do do, do you emphasize or why did you pick up about uh, the role of critical thinking i think because it it's um, it relates back to this question of developing people's capacity to pursue goods in positive ways. And what you're doing all the time when you're thinking particularly about critical thinking is developing their internal skills, their internal strengths, their capacity to engage with ideological positions, recruiters, um, propaganda in more critical ways. What's important to bear in mind around the question of critical thinking is that they're not necessarily always uncritical in their thinking. There's obviously a huge range within that as there would be within wider society. Um, and there are some who are deeply critical, but what's distinct is that they only, they're only critical in one direction. <laughs> so their critical thinking is directed at the state and um, if, with respect to um, jihadism, it would be directed at the West more generally. Um, so what you're trying to do in that context is actually broaden their critical thinking skills so that they have the resilience themselves to then engage more critically, more uh, thoughtfully with material that they're presented with. Because there's no good just telling somebody this idea is wrong, these individuals are illegitimate so you shouldn't take guidance from them. Um, Because the next time they're confronted with somebody who's able to persuade them differently then they you know they're more likely to to believe what they say if you actually develop people's internal capacity to think critically about the material that they're presented with and really just open people's minds up a little bit to the complexities um to the difficulties with geopolitical questions and that they're never going to be solved with simplistic responses such as those set out by ideologues then you can um you can build in resilience over the long term because whoever the mentor is or the probation worker or whoever it is that's working with them isn't going to be there all the time so they have to have those skills in their uh, in themselves that they can then bring them to bear on um, the changing political context on different forms of propaganda that they might encounter so the important thing is developing strengths and resilience within the individual um, and that's where critical thinking comes in and I think this is the, one of the, it, it gets again to the heart of one of the key um, the key 
messages from your book, it's placing human agency at the heart of these these processes. And something like developing critical thinking skills does place that human agency there uh, at the centre point. But I could talk about this research for ages, but I'm I want to to give us time to talk about this the final piece of research that you you focused on, and it's slightly different. So you were focusing on reintegration in in your book and in the conceptualizing success uh, article, which are both links to both are up on the Think Talking Terror website. But the other article that you've highlighted is a social movement theory typology of militant organizations contextualizing terrorism. So this is looking at at the terrorist group rather than the individual involved. Why, why, why did we need another typology? Why? why that, that's, that's the question. Oh and, but I, I'm not saying that, that I don't like the article. I really do like it. But that would be the question that a lot would, would ask at the beginning. Yeah, no, and that, that no, that is. I do encounter that quite a lot. It's actually part of the PhD. So when I came to the PhD, I wanted to develop a way of thinking more empirically, actually, about how to conceptualise and categorise militant organisations. And that very same comment was made to me: Why do we need another typology? So, um, and I suppose what it was rooted in was um, there was as it, it does it does feel very different, obviously, to the reintegration uh, work because it's focused on the group level, it's focused on international. Uh, militant organisations, uh, but there are sort of two similarities uh, which kind of underpin, I suppose, what what's my approach to this field, which is first of all drawing on theory from other spaces, so social movement theory obviously being a very well established theory in political sociology. Um, and second of all, developing an empirical knowledge base, because one of the things around typology, particularly within um, militancy, is that they tend to be very top down, so they are developed. Um, with respect to typically ideology or uh, network structure. Um, and what happens there is, first of all, they're not founded in an empirical evidence base, typically. Um, and the second thing is that they tend to decontextualize the individual group. And what I wanted to do, and what social movement theory provides the tools to think through, actually, is how to understand not only the militant organization on, on its own, but understand it in relation to its wider context. So whether that's its relations to political organizations and political parties, but also how it relates to the wider um, conflict context, if you like. So that's what I was concerned with doing, bringing into dialogue, again, a broader theoretical tradition with evidence to develop better conceptual frameworks. So although it feels quite different, it is, in a sense, it takes the same sort of approach as the conceptualising success um, model, which is to draw on broader theory from other disciplines and bring that to um, into dialogue with evidence. So that was the the, uh, the ambition behind the, um, the typology. Um, and what's interesting was given that it was a very bottom-up um, approach that was essentially using particular statistical approaches based in facet theory and smaller space analysis to try and um, see well what happens if we if we catalog groups across a whole range of different um, indicators what picture does that give us, in effect, of the different types of militant organisation that there are? Um, and the the three um, axes, I suppose, or the three main struts of that um, were related to war-making capacity, network capacity and political capacity. And they themselves um, draw, essentially, a 3D model of different types of militant organisations. So given how messy the data is and given how many militant organisations there are, the fact that there were discernible patterns 
within the evidence base on these particular groups, I, found, I was very pleased about in the mm. first instance. I hadn't wasted um, several months of my time trying to trying to derive that. But it does. What's important, I think, about typology is not necessarily, as I say, that it's true in itself, but does it help us ask better questions? Because I think one of the things that terrorism research has not always been great at is asking good, interesting questions. Um, they uh, they can often be sort of slightly simplistic, and I think that what typology and theory are enable are more interesting and sort of sophisticated questions to emerge from empirical evidence base. So that's what I was trying to do with the group. With all typologies, the only you know, it will be a test of time as to whether other people find that useful. I might find it useful and that's all good for me, but if it's not helpful for other people then obviously um, that's not so useful. But um, that was the ambition with that piece of work, really to just bring some empirical data um, into this question of how do we conceptualize because essentially we don't have a very robust vocabulary um, and i'm really not going to go into the debate about what terrorism <laughs> is but more generally you know how do we talk about these militant groups what does it mean when we talk about them um and how does that politicize obviously but how to what extent do they actually the language the language that we have enable us to talk meaningfully about a really varied landscape of militant groups they are you know, very different in their aims, their ambitions, their structures, their engagement with the wider political space, the extent to which they're supported by the local community or the local um, population. So there's a whole range of difference, actually. And I think that that feels to me that's what we're getting better at. Um, actually breaking or at least recognizing that we need to break down these big categories like terrorist organization and in inverted commas or even guerrilla groups or the, the notion of the terrorist in again inverted commas that we need to start breaking that down and thinking far more in a far more sophisticated way about the distinctions and the differences between them so that typology I suppose was a springboard at least for my own thinking about how to start doing that and I think it really stands out from other typologies in the fact that as you said it's it's an empirically tested typology but one of the things that would stand out to the reader when looking at this article is that you only looked at dormant groups in this what could you explain why you you decided to only uh, analyze dormant groups um partly because the broader question that i was concerned with was around the success so i wanted to operationalize the typology to understand outcomes of militancy mm -hmm. which obviously is something that has to emerge well, typically emerges after the militant organization has died. But the other thing is that militant organizations are extremely dynamic. They change. So the same organization can go from being a small cell in its early days to being a significant network to being potentially, um, you know, a, a, an actor for the state or um, some sort of... Um, uh, proxy actor for the for a, a particular state actor so what you can see is a huge amount of dynamic range between the, the organizational forms also sometimes around their political ambitions militant organizations aren't always wedded to their ideological um, commitments in the ways that we assume them to be so they can change their ideological aims they can change their political ambitions they can change their interaction with others with the state with political actors and so on so what was important was trying to understand what was characteristic, what was what was typical, let's say, about a particular militant organisation. And it seemed that the best way of doing that was to only look at groups that had ended, um, so that you could then look at over the lifetime of that, that organisation and, and identify what was most characteristic or most typical of that particular formation. And I think that one of, you know, one of the things that sort of emerged from that was really that militant organisations don't end all that much, actually. Mm. I started out with a group of nearly 700 
militant groups drawn from all the various databases that are available to us. Um, and in actual fact, when you start whittling it down, when you look at groups, A, on which there is enough evidence and information to build a typology or to start you know, interrogating um, fully, there is limited data. And so you reduce, you know, you reduce your pool by quite a bit there. But second of all, militant organisations re-emerge regularly. So even though you have, you might have one organisation, there will be several, four or five splinter groups that might emerge, that then that might recede. And so what happens is actually you end up with a much, much smaller pool than you might imagine of militant organisations which are truly derelict and defunct. Um, and I think that was one of the striking things that when I was actually developing the data from it, because again, I started very much bottom up um, saying, well, these are all the militant organisations that, that we have data or evidence and, and have catalogued. How can we then start to whittle it down? But when you actually look at groups which have some sort of sustained legacy, so they've carried out more than one or two attacks over more than a single year, um, you actually reduce the number quite significantly. And I think that draws attention to something that we don't always recognise, which is actually militant organisations and militancy can persist for very long periods of time. It might morph um, and it might, and it certainly evolves and is dynamic, but it actually does reduce um, quite significantly over time. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, I think it was a really good decision to make to, to only include dormant groups for the, for the very reasons that you put forward, but it, it would be something that would stand out initially to people. You mentioned there that the the groups change over time but the environment also changes as well so did you have to factor that in uh, for especially for groups who have be, who were in existence over a long period of time were there ways that you were able to factor in environmental changes definitely and i think um trying to understand those broader socio-political factors is is really tricky mm. um so I was looking at questions about political stability, about um, levels of democracy, and trying to identify within the broader indices that are available to measure those sorts of um, issues, uh, trying to identify what was typical for particular groups in um, while they were operating. So it was exactly the same question about asking, well, what, at what point do I draw the line about where what I consider to be typical for this group? It was actually less less tricky than I, might, than I perhaps imagined to start with in that um, political contexts, although they do change, those at that broad level of political stability, um, com levels of conflict, levels of um, democratic participation, they do tend to sort of rumble along at a relatively stable pace. So you don't get huge shifts. Um, you know, authoritarian regimes don't become democratic overnight, obviously. So you, you can find um, measures which do demonstrate some stability, but I had to correct for that using with the methodology that I use to just be careful about when did I actually choose to to, um, to measure these particular factors and then take that into account when I was trying to develop explanations. Oh, it was it, it really stood out. I, I, there was a statement that you made during it and it's my interest in Northern Ireland sort of uh, made me laugh at this. You said you had to characterise Northern Ireland as peacetime and you said the INLA mightn't have agreed with me on that, but it was that's the way you categorised it. I, lo yeah. I love that, that little aside <laughs> there. It was great. But I realised like we've been talking for close to an hour now, but and I want to finish up as I do with each... Um, which 
with each interviewee to ask about the broader state of terrorism research. Um, we talked earlier on about, you were talking about, uh, in relation to Andrew's book, about the need for systematic reviews and bringing that into a potentially updated version of that book. Um, but what do you see as the overall state of terrorism research? Are you with uh, Mark Sageman and you say that it's stagnating or are you more on the side of, of Max Taylor, Alex Schmidt and others saying that, no, that's actually wrong? Where do you, where do you sit in that whole debate? Um, I think it's vibrant. There are more students and more researchers interested in this area than seemingly ever before. So the extent to which people are engaging in this space um, compared with pre-9-11 and um, you know, the 1980s when Alex Smith, as you mentioned, um, you know, was really struggling to actually get a cohort of people together who were, who were interested in exploring this issue, um, that's changed. So um, you know, the number of PhD candidates who, who want to explore this issue, the number of undergraduates and master's students who are interested in questions of terrorism and political violence lend me to believe that there is um it is a vibrant space and again attending the, the conferences and seeing the different perspectives different um bodies of work and different networks of people who are doing this uh, research does lend a lot of hope there is a growing evidence base um i think you know whether that's paul gill's work on lone actors whether that's the work on foreign fighters that's coming out of europe um you know there are increasingly solid pieces of work which are built on robust social science research, um, good evidence, and are critical and recognise the limits of what we're able to say at this stage. Um, but nevertheless, I think that the evidence base is growing, and that's a, a definitely a good thing. I think there's increasing interdisciplinary work, which is really positive. And I think that, like I said right at the start, we are developing a more sophisticated understanding of how policy and practice and research can inform one another. Um, so that, that that moves beyond this sort of distinction between critical terrorism studies and whatever orthodox terrorism studies might be, but actually to recognise that there is a more critical space um, within which policy and practice can be informed by research. So I would say that on, that's on the positive side. Mm -hmm. On the negative side, on the um, I think there are some really persistent problems actually. And uh, you know, going back to Andrew's book um, on trends in research, I think that, that these same issues are still present. And one of the one of the ones is uh, transient researchers, researchers who come in from other fields who have not become familiar with the literature and the debates that exist within terrorism studies, within particular aspects of the field, um, which really inhibits the development of a broader knowledge base. And I think that Andrew got that right a few, you know, 13 years ago, and I, I think that's probably still the case now. There is a stronger body of researchers, no doubt, working persistently and consistently in this space. But I think there are still transient researchers who sort of come in from other fields and think I've got something to contribute, which they undoubtedly do. Um, and that's not to say that that's, I think that they shouldn't be um, engaging with this work, but it's a case of just ensuring that they are familiar, thoroughly familiar with the debates um, that exists within the field so because I think it does limit the development of the knowledge base because you essentially you're always engaging with um, debates which happened you know five years ago or whatever it might be so I think it doesn't move the field forward as fast as it might be there is still a problem about empirical data it is still very difficult to access particularly in the UK it's very difficult to access for instance those who actually have got convictions of terrorism for terrorism offences for some very good reasons as well actually I mean it's not to say that we should just have carte blanche and have access to all the data but I think um, there, there does have to be um, a more concerted effort to just get out in the field don't you know it's sort of when students come and say I want to you know look at radicalization and, and I say just go into the field go not obviously don't talk to terrorists I don't necessarily advocate that for undergraduates or master students but essentially 
honestly, just go and gather some data. Build the evidence base. Don't try and conceptualise something again from that kind of top-down point of view, which is often quite remote from um, the reality of involvement in extremism. So I think that question about empirical data continues to be a problem, as you would expect it to be. Um, and I think that there remains an uneven focus across the literature. So again, you know, huge emphasis in the Western-based literature on jihadi Salafism, which is neglecting, I think, really important things like the emergence of far-right terrorism, like the re-emergence, or not re-emergence, but the persistence and the significant impact of state terrorism. Um, and we still don't get that balance right. Um, and it's, it's it. I remember Paul Wilkinson, the late Paul Wilkinson, who um, was the editor for Terrorism and Political Violence for a long time, uh, based at St Andrews, and he said, you know, I would love to, this was in the 1970s and 80s and uh, going into the 90s, and he said, uh, you know, I would love to publish more on stuff that wasn't Ireland, that wasn't based on the Irish question, uh, the, the conflict in Ireland, um, but it just doesn't come across my desk. And I think that now we're in, you know, in a, in a different time where the jihadi Salafism space is the most vibrant in terms of the research, but I think that it neglects other, other areas. Um, and I think, again, just the final point is that we, we're not making best use of theory and we're not making best use of inter really robust interdisciplinary work. Now, interdisciplinary work can be done really badly, <laughs> but it can also be done really, really well in ways that help us to develop better explanations, better frameworks. Um, you know, just thinking about the radicalisation literature, so much of it is based on these kind of disembodied risk factors, which really are divorced from individual experience very often and also divorced from wider theory theoretical accounts, which might help to contextualise and develop explanations that sit around them. So I think although there is some really good work being done that crosses over between disciplines and brings to bear theory and methods from other spaces, that we can do much more in that regard. And with all this in mind, with the issues that you were talking about in relation to, to terrorism studies, and you hinted at it uh, earlier on in the interview, uh, I think I know what your answer is, but do you think it should be a discipline in, in its own right? Um, I think it needs to be aware of its limits. Um, it, for me, discipline, as you said right at the beginning, I'm not. A, I'm not really. I don't really sit in a discipline, mm. so I'm kind of reluctant to to um, to either position myself or my research within a particular discipline because I think. Um, you know, I'm more concerned with broader sort of issues and not to silo different bodies of knowledge in particular disciplinary points of view. Um, but that's not to uh, say that having things like journals and conferences and particular networks of researchers um, who work on particular issues is really vital because that's how you move things forward quickly. Mm -hmm. You get a group of people who have, um, you know, shared commitment to a particular question or idea or issue um, and you share practice and knowledge and then you move things forward more quickly that way. So I don't think that there's, um, there's nothing wrong with doing that. And I think it's actually very important to do that. But I think I'm reluctant, typically actually more just more generally to, to sit within particular disciplines and to sort of um, draw those boundaries around disciplines in ways that can potentially actually undermine fertilisation and um, kind of a cross-pollination of knowledge. And I suppose that's why you're a lecturer in radicalisation and protest in a digital age. You're... Yeah, that's exactly right. So my employers, uh, when they advertised that job, um, yeah, uh, there was a good fit between somebody who was sort of reluctant to position themselves disciplinarily um, and the ambitions for the university. So, yeah, it's brilliant. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for uh, giving us your time today. I found it 
a really interesting interview. Um, and as I said, I could, I could have chatted to you about this for, for ages. Um, so for those of you who do want to go a bit more in-depth in, into Sarah's research, as I said, there are links uh, to all the research we discussed today on the website. That's uel.ac.uk forward slash T-E-R-C. Uh, you can find links to Sarah's research as well as the research that she discussed that influenced her. For all uh, updates on the on the podcast, on our MSc in Terrorism and Counterterrorism Studies, on our events here in Turk, uh, on our book series with IB Tours, be sure to visit the website and to follow us on Twitter at T-E-R-C-U-E-L. But... I'd like to thank Sarah for today's interview. I'd like to thank Jamie Murray for editing the podcast. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Okay, bye. Well, I hope that you found that um, chat with Dr. Sarah Marsden worthwhile. There's a lot there to, to think about in relation to reintegration of offenders and other issues that were raised there. Be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking to another excellent researcher, Dr. Bart Shorman. In that discussion, we'll be talking about how the research of Donatella Della Porta, Carl van Clausewitz, Max Taylor and John Horgan have inf- has influenced his career. And also, we'll be talking about his own research, research that looks at rationales for terrorist violence and homegrown jihadist groups, the reintegration of jihadist extremists, carrying on from the themes that were discussed with Sarah today, and an analysis of popular support and counterterrorism in three Western democracies. So I hope that you can tune in next week and uh, talk to you all then. Bye.